Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. If this sounds a little bit different, it's because I'm still getting my recording set up back up and running after I went to do panels at Liberty City Anime Con. And on that note, thank you to everybody who came out to see all three panels that I did at Liberty City Anime convention in New York City over this past weekend. I had a lot of fun putting them all together and I hope you guys enjoyed watching it. Watching all that stuff and coming to see me and hear me talk about all the cool stuff I did. Once again, if you weren't there, unfortunately I didn't have it together to record the audio for all the panels, but eventually I will. Um, but thank you still if you're, so if you're a new listener, um, this is not as, this show is not as cerebral as those panels are. It's much more in the style of my mommy and daddy hates you thing, which, my mommy and daddy hates you panel, which I think was, which was the middle panel I did that was packed to the rafters, but, um, as it usually is. But this, basically what this show is, if it's your first time listening, which I anticipate a lot of people this to be their first time listening, because I saw a lot of you pointing your phones at that QR code and saying like, oh, he has a podcast. A couple of you even asked, you know, where it's available, and the answer is, if you're listening to it right now, just about everywhere. But... If you listened to the previous episode on Air Gear and you've been subscribed for a long time, thank you. If you maybe listened to the last episode because it was the most recent thing up and you liked it and you're back, thank you. If this is your first episode, thank you as well. Um, Before we get into what we're going to talk about this week, I do want to talk about... A little thing on Netflix. I actually just started watching, um, literally today, I just started watching, um, Cannon Busters, which is a new Netflix original anime production with actually an African-American director. I don't know his name, but it seems super well-written. It has this, like, almost Megas XLR feel to it, which I really like, and if you don't know what Megas XLR is, I don't think I've ever done a episode on it, but it's a kind of mid-2000s era, like early 2000s era Cartoon Network original show that was meant to be a send-up of the, like, giant robot anime in which the pilot's are this, like, overweight dude from Jersey, which I'm starting to resemble, um, (laughs) and his, like, scrawny best friend. Uh, uh, And when I say overweight dude from Jersey, I mean, like, overweight, like, bro, gamer bro from New New Jersey in in America, the state in America. And his, like, best friend, who is hysterical, his, the best friend's name, the main character's name is, um, Cliff, the best friend's name is Jamie, and the best part about Jamie is he's voiced by Steve Bloom, in all of Steve Bloom's weird nasally version of Glory, and Jamie has the, some of the best lines in the show, like, there's a scene where he's talking about, what they're talking about, like, space, like, space bounty hunters, and he's like, you mean far away, like, Planet of the Space Bounty Babes, or far away, like, Hoboken? (laughs) And, like, every piece of me is just engaged by that line in a way that I've always loved, but, um, so, Cannon Busters is kind of like that, but the thing I really want to talk about is this documentary style thing that they released called Enter the Anime, 
And the reason why I want to talk about that is because it's this seemingly, like, not really innocuous, but not really... It, it's this seemingly odd idea of entering... It's a seeming entry point for anime as a medium provided by Netflix and done as a Netflix original documentary movie. But what it does in practice, and I I, I made it 10, I will, full disclosure, I made it 10 minutes into this thing and I'm like, I can't, I I know where this is going and I can't do it. I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm way past the... Anime is so edgy, and I want to learn more about why it's edgy, kind of like lifestyle. <laughs> Does that make any sense? If you, if you have seen my panels, you know that like I'm not, I'm not that kind of fan anymore. That kind of fan does exist, and more power to them. It, cool for you, but I have been kicking around the like anime world for close to 20 years and just like yes there is some edgy dark emo anime but there is also like soulful thoughtful introspective interesting anime and those things intertwine with each other at certain points and diverge from each other at certain points and it's all mixed up together. It's more complicated than just being the edgy, cool show. What looks like a My Chemical Romance cover kicked a Led Zeppelin cover in the face. And so actually the best, like, if you want to know about this thing and what the contents are without having to watch the thing itself... um. I would encourage you to go check out um, Jeff Sue Professional Shitbags video. It's called Enter the Advertising, Netflix's Hate Letter to Anime. And what he talks about in that video is really what I feel in that, in just like 10 minutes of that documentary. And it's that they are... The rampant, the rampant, like, weird abuse of editing and the treatment of the creators as this, like, insane, bizarre universe unto itself. Just, it, let me put it this way. The way they treat the first interview subject, who I think is the one of the, um, principal, not, I forget what he, I forget exactly what he directed, but anyway, the way they treat him, it makes him seem like this high artist, and that may be true, that is totally possible, but what it doesn't make him seem like, is it doesn't make him seem like a dude who has to go grocery shopping. And if you're like, why is that important? The reason why it's important is because, and this is clearly getting more cerebral than you should be prepared for with our main topic, although maybe not. The reason why that's important is because it's important that people see creators as humans. And it's important that people see that create, that like creating things like that isn't out of their reach. And if you portray a, a if you portray anime as a genre and not a medium that you start to look at that genre and you start to look at the examples of the kinds of people who create in that genre and you wonder if there's a place for you if you look at it as a medium as a tool set to tell stories then it's open to anybody. And just Netflix's treatment of 
like anime as a medium, but treating it like a genre, it doesn't, the only thing that helps is that helps you when you say, I want to go watch some anime and I want to do it on Netflix. They have a tab that says anime and you know, it's in there, but, and that's actually a huge problem with, um, Amazon, although Amazon streaming service has just the biggest pile of bullshit problems imaginable, um, which I think I've talked about previously on this podcast in like the opening segment, but what treating anime like a genre in the way that Enter the Anime does is it, A, it enforces a lot of like cultural stereotypes that are super not great, B, it ignores the brevity of it, it, it ignores the fact that Something like, um, neighborhood stories could exist next to something like Grave of the Fireflies. And if you know both of those show, both of those properties, you know that those are completely different, disparate properties. And those properties are much, much diff- different than say something then um I don't know um say something like Dragon Ball Z which is totally different than both of those things and by seeing those even those three properties neighborhood stories which is at its core a um a, a really a story about a neighborhood and primarily a romantic comedy and when you put it next to something like, um, what's it called? Like, um, Grave of the Fireflies, which is like a heart-wrenching story about war and the consequences of war on everyday people next to a big, bombastic, everybody knows what it is, shown in action show like Dragon Ball Z, you see the whole, you start to see what the whole breadth of the medium of anime could look like. But if you focus in on all of these, like, edgy, dark things, like the Netflix, like the Netflix documentary wants to do, then you start to... lose that brevity, if that makes any sense. And the Netflix does have things like Agresco next to Baki, next to um, Cannon Busters. But if you know anything about the anime industry, um, then you know what that means. You know what I just said. I just said three names of three Netflix properties. And what this show, what this documentary also does is it causes people to not realize that Netflix is only talking, it's only using its own shows in this documentary. And that's why Jeff Sue. Um, on his channel, my mother's basement says that it is an advertising because, and I have a lot of experience with this. I worked as a graphic designer and creative in and out of agencies and design shops and brands for the better part of a decade before I do what I do now, which is a totally different creative pursuit. But, um, basically, what Netflix is doing with Enter the Anime is it's creating a piece of propaganda for its own shows. And and it's using the medium of anime to sell its own shows that are in that medium, in that style, basically. 
and but it's couching it as an entry point. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, except for a everything I just ranted about, but b is also minimizing the human cost of creating these shows. So the way Jeff um, puts it on his video is actually kind of perfect. What they're doing is they're setting up is there, what they're doing probably unintentionally because if it is intentional, it's even worse, but I can see how they would do it unintentionally. They are creating a norm because if they didn't want to deal with the labor problems of the anime industry, which are vast and many, um, actually one of the things that set Kyoto Animation, the um, studio that was unfortunately burned in an arson attack a few weeks back, uh, on the, a few weeks back, um, a part is that it kept reasonable, it kept its employees to reasonable hours and it paid them a living wage. That is rare in the anime industry, extremely rare. And it is so rare that Kyoto, the reason why Kyoto animation shows are so particular and they always have such, uh, they have a particular feel is because that's the feel that they know they can sell. Yes, they do branch out and do other work, but they always have something that will make them bank at some point because they need to know they can pay a salary reliably. Whereas other studios that are just making certain shows, not making other shows, they may have a kind of like house style, but they make all these shows and the losses are incurred by committees of people because they are, they pay from what I understand, about $2 per drawing to every animated. I mean, every time you complete a drawing, you make $2. That is way below even the lowest minimum wage, I'm pretty sure, in, the, in America, and definitely below minimum wage in Japan. So, if you want to make $100 a day, Let's say you want to make $100 a day. You need to work upwards of 50 hours a day. Not a week. Uh, lots of people have heard of the 40-hour work week. You would need to work 50 hours a day. That's 10 hours more than a standard work week for lots of people. And what that means is that these people are super overworked and... The show, the um, documentary highlights this for a brief moment and then just glosses over it. What that does is it puts it in the, person, in the back of the person's head and through framing, they frame it as these people are passionate artists. Not people who are, who are using a trade skill to make money because that's whether you've worked in the arts or not. You may at some point have believed that working in a creative field means you are chasing your passion and you're doing what you love. It can mean that. But what it also means is that you have been trained in a trade and you're using those skills to make yourself money. The same as working in accounting or working in construction or working in logistics, or being a software engineer. Creative pursuits like design and animation and illustration and things as obscure like calligraphy are all trades. It's no different than being a, like I said, an accountant. And functionally, someone is paying you for your trade skill and 
you are providing that skill. So if you ever stop and think like, oh, these people are doing what they are doing what they love. Yes, they are. But they're also doing what they love to make money to be able to eat. And if you watch, if you have already seen Enter the Anime, which I would imagine you have, and you think like, oh, these are passionate artists. No, they're not. They are underpaid staff members or underpaid freelancers. And that's not good. And if, um, like Jeff proposed, Netflix is somehow setting up a norm where that's just the normal, the norm of the industry, and now people who are fighting to change it are fighting against a norm that Netflix has espoused, that's a bad thing because that makes it harder for the creators you and I love to create within reason and be able to create and afford a life, any life. I'm not talking about like being able to travel around the world. I'm talking about being able to get groceries for the week so they can feed themselves and their families. Then people will be pushed away from it. The reason I stopped freelancing in New York City is because, yes, I worked on amazing projects for amazing clients and made good money, I found a way to make more money more uh, on a m- more sustainable basis without doing that. So I moved away from that. And that what ultimately happens to creative pursuits that don't pay well. They empty out. And the only people left in them are people with more with more passion than and a higher tolerance for risk than is healthy, basically. And the Japanese anime industry has for years preyed on those people. Has chewed them up, burned them out, and tossed them aside. Basically. Um, but, that said... Um, I am going, this is still a podcast about anime and I will always, and it will, it will be, it will always be. So, um, except for when it's about live action movies, but that's not that common. Don't worry about it. But right now I want to move in the main bit and what we'll be talking about this today. And this was an extended long bit. So who knows how long this podcast is going to get. That's going to be fun. Um, but today, this episode, what we're going to talk about is a little show that has something to do with two of the panels I put on, uh, three if you think about it, and that show is Full Metal Alchemist. So, if you've ever if you've ever watched anime or if you've made it to this podcast, you've probably heard of Full Metal Alchemist. And I'm going to be talking about a bunch of things involving it. If you've seen my panel on disability, you know I have a segment that specifically talks about like being disabled in full in Full Metal Alchemist, since both main characters of the show are disabled. Edward Elric, the main character, the titular character of the show. He is the full metal alchemist. He is missing an arm and a leg because when him and his brother Alphonse, who is missing his entire body and has been soul bonded, quote unquote, to a suit of armor, um, were kids. Their father wasn't around a lot. They didn't know why, but he would show up for 
10 minutes to, like, schmooze his wife and then fuck off to wherever he went to. Um, and they do explain that later. But, as I'm sure lots of us well know, but their mother fell, fell ill, deathly ill. She ended up dying, and they, after a number of years, they procured all the ingredients of a human. And there's a great scene in um, the beginning of Full Metal Alchemist, the beginning of both versions, because I should say, if you've only ever seen the most recent version of Full Metal Alchemist, if you've only ever seen Brotherhood, the reason why it says Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, that's because there's an original 2003 show that's just called Full Metal Alchemist. And that show is... Is it's okay. The, it, actually, the first halves of both shows run pretty parallel to each other. But then the second half of Brotherhood takes on a whole different structure than the second half of the original. And the reason for that is actually because Full Metal Alchemist, the 2003 version, the original anime actually concluded before the manga was over. And so once the manga was over, everybody got together and they agreed, we want to take a better stab at this. So at that point, they made Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, which I forget when it came out, but it it was announced when I was in college, and me and my friend Christian... Um, my friend Lauren, who's actually been on this podcast, she was on most recently, talking about, um, Evangelion, but we, like, were in Christian's apartment, and me and Christian were just the most massive dweebs, and we were, like, freaking out over the fact that there was gonna be another variant of Full Metal Alchemist, and we're like, what the hell is different? What the fuck is going on? It, I... I think his hair is blonder. And then we, I shit you not, like, spent more time than was necessary, like, comparing hair colors and, like, vibrancy and... Oh, it got bad. Um, but... So, that's kind of the diverging point of both. But in both... In both versions of the show, uh, I want to say in the first episode... Edward Ed reads from a little journal, and he reads the an ingredient list. And the ingredient list is very specific. I forget what it is, but you can go look up the clip because it's a pretty well-known clip. Um, he reads the full shopping list of what compounds make the human body. And what the, like, building blocks for the physical body are. And he notes in that scene, they can all be for, you can afford all of this for pocket change. You can, be basically saying, anyone can afford the physical building blocks of a human. And what the and that kind of kicked off the show's ethos, uh, the show's first like big question, which is, what's the worth of a person, and what's and in so this is going to require a little bit of other thought outside of anime, um, but basically. What you should know about Full Metal Alchemist and what you should know specifically about its um its not like it what you should know specifically about its premise is that it uses alchemy, which is a real fake scientific study from like the fifteenth, sixteenth century or some shit in which it supposes that through really magic, but they believe science, 
you could do things like turn lead to gold. And or create what they call in the show and in actual the actual study of alchemy, chimeras. Or but basically that you could harness the energy around you to transform one thing into another. And they in alchemy that's called transmutation. In um Full Metal Alchemist in Full Metal Alchemist, they use what's called transmutation circles. And these are based in reality from what I remember. And basically it's a circle that in it contains instructions to transmute something from something else. And the reason the Elric brothers lose either part their body in part or in whole, in case of Alphonse, he lost his whole body, is they attempt the one taboo of alchemy. And that is human transmutation. And specifically, bringing a human back from death. And what that means is they try and bring their mom back. And you find out later that that is literally impossible. You cannot bring a person back from the dead. It is not a thing that is possible. Um, but what, as children, what happens is that taboo, when broken, basically gives birth to what you find out later are homunculus. And homunculus are artificially created humans with, you're told one soul, but you find out many souls embedded in them. And... I'm jumping, I'm jumping in information-wise here, I'm jumping all over the series because it will give you a clearer view of the series. But, and so you find out that Ed loses his left leg and left arm, I believe. And Al loses his entire body, and they are claimed by basically the gate, which is this physical representation of what they believe is God. And that kind of starts their journey into a world where this science has been militarized to the fullest extent, and they become what they the show calls living weapons of the state. They become embroiled first in the in the army and then in the in the kind of like underbelly of the army and they become these like the heroes of the show but what the show poses and what I find interesting is that the Full Metal Alchemist is not a story of them finding an evil and chasing it down and conquering it. It is of a story of them making a mistake and then spending an entire show to fix their mistake. As a result of Ed, because as a result of what Ed and Al attempt to do, which is bring their mother back, they lose, like I said, in part or in whole, their bodies. And then they set out on a path to regain their bodies. And the show in both versions, but especially in the um, version that in, in the in in Brotherhood, make sure that you know that, yes, they're fighting bad guys, and yes, they're, like, they take on the the seven homunculus, which are represented by the seven deadly sins. They're only in it to get their bodies back. And the entire reason they fight the homunculus is because they realize these people 
are standing in the way of our of us having our bodies again. And you find out later in Brotherhood that Al's whole body is basically a husk being like held in stasis beyond the gate. Which is like what they call the gate of truth. And so this show, Full Metal Alchemist poses that there is a point at which human knowledge is cut off. And human knowledge of alchemy is cut off. And people develop alchemy in all kinds of different ways. And there's like a little bit of a Tower of Babel situation happening where in the far e- the show takes place in a fictional Germany, but in the far e- the fictional far east of the show, basically China, they call alchemy alka history, and alka history is used almost exclusively for medicinal purposes, which they find odd in a mistress, which is the standing for Germany, basically for pre World War Germany, um. They find that odd because in Amestris, alchemy has tons of uses, but it is primarily a the domain of the military. If you are an accomplished alchemist, you are recruited by the military either for research or for combat. And in in that, but in that connection, it introduces something in Brotherhood that is interesting to Ed and Al because the like Far East version of alchemy comes right up to the line of the like one thing of like the one thing you should never do in alchemy in a way that shouldn't be possible. And that gives them a lot of hope at the time. But what that also means is that there is a portion of knowledge that's not available to everybody, to everyone in this show. But there's a thing that happens in the in Full Metal Alchemist in that all alchemists have to use tr- what they call transmutation circles, which is a set of instructions that you pick up from a book that someone figures out at some point, but you pick up from a book and that focuses the energy to transmute whatever you're trying to transmute. And everybody has... It's almost like a tribal thing. You, Everybody had their own pass-through-generations alchemy circle. Roy Mustang's alchemy circle is different from... Um, Kimberly's alchemy circle is different from... These are all characters who are alchemists. Um, is different from... Um, what's his face? Um, Shao Tucker's alchemy circle. and But they all do... They all do different things. And they're all built with a purpose. Um, but... Ed, notably... Edward Elric the main character, doesn't use a circle. He claps his hands together and then he puts them on whatever he wants to transmute. So what the show tells you is that because Edward Elric can do this, the only reason he can do that is because he's been past the gate and he's gained a kind of instinctive knowledge of how alchemy works where he no longer needs the circle. And in different points in Brotherhood, you meet different characters, like his former teacher, and his, um, what's it called? His father, and ultimately um, Alphonse, who all use alchemy in that same way. They don't need to use it, they don't need to draw a transmutation circle or use a transmutation circle at all. 
They can simply clap their hands together and transmute. And what that is perceived as by, by many people is great talent that not everybody has. But what it is in reality is it is something that they... Ha- it is a... It is the thing they have gained in exchange for something. And that's really important in this show. This entire show, the the beginning of every show, and I think I might put it in, well, I can't because I'm recording this differently, but at the beginning of every episode of Full Metal Alchemist, a announcer says, for something to be gained... Something of equal value must be lost. That is the law of equivalent exchange. And in the very beginning of the show, they stress that there's nothing that can be traded for a human life because human life is priceless. You can't put a price on a person's soul. And that's why... human transmutation always ends in a rebound, which is what they call when the gate comes out and when the hands come out of the gate and take your body or your body parts. But what you find out is that like nothing is worse than human life, what you gain for attempting that is knowledge is enough knowledge to transmute without a circle. And what you gain for attempting that multiple times is an insane amount of knowledge, basically. And it just so that's kind of the setup, or like the like dressing, the like dressing around it. But what this show ultimately does, and what the the conversation ultimately wants to have, is it wants to have a conversation about a bunch of things. But of course, the thing that most interests me is its display of disabled people and disabled people in positions of power. Um, I talk about the. I talk about Rush Valley a lot in my um, Full Metal and Beyond panel about disability because Rush Valley is basically what if all the prosthetic makers in the world held up in one like valley and just made the best prosthetics known to man. But it this show also wants to have a conversation about corruption. It wants to have a conversation about the value of people who are of a different race than you. And it really successfully has those conversations. It also has a conversation about the consequences of actions of the past on the present and future. So there's a character in both, in Full Metal Alchemist called Scar. And Scar is this character who is Ishvalan, and the Ishvalans are basically the religious um, indigenous people of Amestris. The Amestrians are basically Germany, but the Ishvalans are people who lived there before that, and if you're like, that doesn't track quite with the way Germany was post blah, 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 blah. You could draw similarities to to Jewish people in Germany before World War II. But what you probably should do is you probably, and I forget the name of the indigenous tribe in Japan, but um, there's a tribe of indigenous people in Japan um, they are most notably featured in a show called um, Golden Kamui in 
anime form, but they are a almost like a almost like the Native Americans but Japanese kind of like idea. They have really they really covet bears. Um, they um, live a very different style of life than the Japanese traditionally do. I wish I could remember the name of the proper name for them. But lots of Japanese people look down on them and abuse them over time. And Japan as a society is not accepting of racial difference. Um, that's not unlike American society. But what's different is America at least has a founding principle that no one's from here except for the Native Americans. And not even now are we really treating the Native American in America the way they should be treated um, because we took their shit. And... Full Metal Alchemist wants to have that conversation, had that conversation by using Scar to show you that conversation and show you the consequences of someone's of oppressive actions stretched out into the future. Scar was in was a child when Ishfal was attacked, and he survived. And he survived to become a serial killer in a mistress who hunts down and punishes alchemists who were either part of the Ishvalan conflict or continued to be just the biggest dirtbags. The thing the show does, the thing that Full Metal Alchemist does so effectively, is that it makes sure that you know that its bad characters are bad and its good characters are good. It, when you meet um, Shao Tucker, the the character they call the Sewing Life Alchemist, that may send up some bells in your head if you're like, Shao Tucker. What does that mean? Shao Tucker is the character who kills his own daughter and first his own wife, but then his own daughter to create talking chimeras. And from the moment you meet him, he's slightly off. He's slightly creepy, but you. The show says it's fine. He's a scientist. He's just a bookworm. He's awkward around people. He seems nice enough. And then over the course of... I want to say it originally took three episodes. I don't know. In the 2003 version. I don't know how long it takes in the... In Brotherhood. But over a course of some time... You start that unsettlement turns to just okay. That's just the way it is. It's fine. It, it, but overall, you're you're overwhelmed by Nina and the dog are cute, and you fall in love with them, and you tolerate him, and you're just like, oh, he's a, it, it, the show sets it up so he seems like he's under a lot of pressure, and then Nina disappear. Nina and the dog disappear. And you realize that this guy's a monster. He is... In the way that Gendo... If you've never seen the show, the anime, Full Metal Alchemist, in the way that Gendo Akari has become a meme for being a terrible father, Shao Tucker has, has like followed close in his path. And... It's this demonstration of science in 
in the name of progress being used for evil that the show says to you, like, yes, it can be used in bad ways, but for a good reason, like for Edward and Al, but it can also be used in bad ways for a bad reason, reason that supposedly forwards scientific goals. And this show, from that point on, and really from the beginning, wants to have a conversation about the ethics of science done in the name of progress, and only progress, and what science can do and what it should do. And by using the big, scary, magical version of science that is alchemy, they can really swing that pendulum as hard as possible in any direction they want. And it's it's a really interesting exploration of that. It also... It, by militarizing it, they do a really effective job of saying, like, do you people know who you're working for? Because like, oftentimes... When we think about science in the military, we think about the Manhattan Project, the project that created the atom bomb, that created the only nuclear weapon ever used against anyone, ever. And that's a huge deal. But the Manhattan Project was devised by scientists. It, it is, uh, It created... A, prod- a horrifying product as a result of research and science and many, many minds putting their effort towards one thing that ultimately destroyed a, a, a people. <laughs> and you shouldn't forget that that's possible. You shouldn't forget that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. They, but you also shouldn't forget that you shouldn't advance the many at the expense of the few. And the show wants... But the show with Full Metal Alchemist as a property... And this is true of both shows, this is true of the manga, this is true of the movies, wants you to take away from it is that every life is priceless no matter what the circumstances that life is is in. Just because you're an old man doesn't mean you can't contribute to society. Just because you're a kid who hasn't done anything yet doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to in the future. And as a show, by using it... Oh, and the the huge thing, the massive, deeply important thing that it always sticks to is this also applies to the resources you have. So there's... I forget what... I think it's... They they go to a town called Yule, and they find this um, state, this uh, Amestrian state, Amestrian state um, military captain who is holding this, who is holding this town with an iron fist, and they say. We want to buy the town from you. Because we don't like the way you're running it. And they transmute a big old pile of coal into gold. And they use that to buy the town from him. And free the people and make sure that the, that all of those people, all the people un, under that cat under that army captain can now benefit from their labor because you're 
shown that they aren't benefiting from the labor they're doing at all. The situation is not equal, as you would say in a show like Trigon. And as a result, he freaks, like, he, this guy ends up out on his ass, and his greed and abuse of power results in him being made a fool of, basically. And over and over and over again, you see these characters in this show who are immensely privileged and are immensely privileged in a way that is unfair. And more often than not, they are undone by that privilege and they are undone by their But they they are undone by their greed for something. Um, the the homunculus are ultimately undone because they are because of pretty much their arrogance and attempt to f- fuck with humanity. The top military brass are always usurped because they are too full of themselves, they don't realize to realize that they they are already screwed. The characters who are bad characters in Full Metal Alchemist always have the most power. Um, Once you find out King Bradley is a homunculus, he he ends up being Wrath you see that the top of the king of Amestris is a is a bad guy. He is he's up until you find out that he's um a homunculus you're just like, oh it's King Bradley. He seems like he's really of like strong military leader but he seems harmless. It's fine. He seems like a good person. But then you find out that he's wrath and you're like, oh shit. And from the point at which you find out he's wrath, you start to find out that the entire country of Amestris is basically a giant transmutation circle. And they are attempting basically to screw with God through using a giant transmutation circle. And they, the Edward, the Edward brothers, the Elric brothers basically screw their plans up, spoil it, and as a result, get their bodies back. By the Edward brothers doing the right thing and protecting people, they ultimately, it ultimately, it leads to the goal they wanted. So what? Full Metal Alchemist is, for all of its, like, trappings and everything, it is inherently a story about two brothers who make a mistake. And not because they are good people, but because they are... Not only because they're good people, but because they are attempting to correct their mistakes. They happen to save the world, which I, I I find I find the admission of the fact that they are not that they are in it for themselves they end up helping other people but they are ultimately in the they are ultimately in the story for their own means to be really interesting because uh, oftentimes you oftentimes when you write a story like that you end up with a protagonist a good a good guy who's like a nigh on sociopath and but the Elric brothers both of them 
are like thoughtful, hopeful, thinking, feeling people and not just like sociopathically going through the world attempting something. Um, but I've been going on for long enough and uh, I, I, so I hope you liked this episode. If you did like this episode, you can subscribe to the podcast, listen to all the other episodes that came before this. I know this, this particular episode was odd, um, but I have been Alex and I am so happy a lot of you came to out to see my panels. I hope to see you next year. I have a new one that I'm cooking up for next year. So look forward to that. But um, I've been Alex. This has been Lunchbox Radio. And I'll talk to you next time.